0: Welcome to week six of our series from the book of Jonah called uh, The Prodigal Prophet. Today, um, we're nearing the end of this series, so today we're going to dig into the the fourth and final chapter of Jonah, finally, although we're actually going to be in it for two weeks. Um, But before I get into it, let me just sort of recap where we come from. If if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, um, if you've been following along in this series, you know. Uh, the Jonah is the story of a man, a prophet, who was called to go to a place called Nineveh. And he refused to go, and so God came after him and sort of turned him around, and, and eventually Jonah decided to go. Um, and in going there, and in preaching to the people of Nineveh, uh, there was this massive turning of the Ninevites to God. David talked about it uh, last week. And uh, Scripture says that the people of Nineveh turned, they repented of their violence and their wicked ways. And uh, I think it's worth just kind of um, pointing out for a moment here that uh, nobody would argue with the fact that things are as divided as they ever have been in our culture. I haven't heard anybody say anything other than that. But even as divided as things are right now, one of maybe the only things that people will agree on even in our culture is that everybody wants to see the kind of cultural transformation that took place in Nineveh take place in their culture. Meaning there's not a person alive that would not love to see their culture transformed to the point that people stop being violent and stop being wicked toward each other. Because obviously that's going to dramatically elevate the quality of life for everybody. Everybody wants that. Scripture says that's exactly what happened, at least temporarily, in Nineveh. Now, if I can just point out, one of the things that's so interesting about a number of Old Testament books is is they never end the way you swear they should end. Because it really seems like that should be the end of Jonah. And then, you know, the moral of the story, I mean, it would have this beautiful kind of, you know, fairy tale ending. It's just everything's nice and neat and wrapped up. And, And, you know, the moral of the story would be something like, you know, just do what God calls you to do and watch what he can do through you. It even rhymes, you know? You could call it the Jonah jingle. Uh, but but that's not how it ends. And, and and one of you know as I was thinking about this, uh, if if the Bible was not inspired by God. I think that's exactly how Jonah would end, because that seems like it's how it should end, but it doesn't end with chapter 3. There's a chapter 4, and it's it's an incredibly odd chapter. And that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read, the the whole chapter is only 11 verses, so I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing. I'm starting in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Nineveh has just responded to the message God delivered through Jonah, and here's what we read. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? That question... (laughs) just shows you how patient God is with the stupidity of people. God asked the question, is it right for... He could have just killed him. He could have just given Jonah what he wanted. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah's having a bad day. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. Uh, As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, It is right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? And that's the end of the book. So ends the reading of God's word. What you're seeing here is that uh, Jonah is disgusted at the repentance and the cultural transformation of, of Nineveh. This is the picture of a man who is unhinged. He's unbalanced. And I think above all else, if you just needed to hold it to one, a one-word description, Jonah's unstable. And it raises the question, what's going on? Where does that come from? And the answer is found in a verse in the New Testament. There's, a, there's actually one specific verse that nails everything about Jonah to the wall. It's James chapter 1, verse 8. Which tells us that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. When, when James talks about a, a double-minded man, he's talking about a lot more than just an intellectual condition. The Greek word he uses there is, is the word; uh, it's pronounced "dipsychos." It looks like "di psychos," and it literally means it's a Greek word that literally means two souls or uh, uh, double-hearted. It's referring to somebody who has given their heart in allegiance to more than one thing. What James is saying in chapter 1 verse 8 is that when you live that way, you will be unstable in all your ways. And Jonah here is obviously the poster child of that verse. If you've been following along in in this series or if you're just familiar with the book, you remember back in chapter 2, Jonah had a mountaintop experience with God where he, he understands God's grace in a new kind of life-giving way. It seems like he's really turned a corner in his spiritual life. He's, you know He gets it finally. Uh, but then here he is about a half hour later, and he is so angry that God works so powerfully through him that he, he, he literally he doesn't even want to live anymore. That's a profound kind of instability that this guy's giving off. And there's really only one way to explain that. The answer is that Jonah is a man with a divided heart. It, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that Jonah did legitimately love and serve the true God, but what's true alongside of that is that he also evidently uh, believed in and served a rival God, and so he's double-hearted, and what James is saying is that a person like that is going to experience the emotional and the spiritual instability and turmoil that we see in in, in Jonah here. Now, all that to say, here's, here's the million dollar question, and I'll just make this personal. Do you ever experience the kind of instability that Jonah's experiencing here? And let me get a little bit more specific than that and make everybody uncomfortable. What I mean is, do you ever experience bitterness toward other people the way Jonah does here? Do you ever feel held captive by your own emotions to the point that they're steering the ship more so than, than you are. Do you, ever, do you know what that, what it's like to feel like that? Do you ever go through periods of life where you feel like your life has no meaning? Like there's nothing to live for? And, and, and just to bottom line this, do you ever experience this kind of spiritual instability? Where one day your, your relationship with God is absolutely life-giving. The next day it's of no comfort to you at all. And I, I just want to offer this. If any of that resonates with you, then, then I would just like to kind of put forth for your consideration on the table today that perhaps what's true, what was true of Jonah is currently true of you, that the instability in your own life comes from your own divided heart. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what a divided heart is, what it means to have one, what that looks like and how it manifests itself. And then we're going to end by talking about how a divided heart can be healed. So with that, I want to revisit just the first three verses of this passage. Jonah chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 3 says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What, what you and I are given here is a great picture. It's kind of like a self diagnostic tool. These verses give us both the sign and the source of a divided heart. All right, first off, what, what Jonah is saying here is um, this is the reason I ran from you in the first place, God. I knew what you're like, I know that you're gracious. Because Jonah was a a, a member of the nation of Israel, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, Israel was the nation that God specifically decided to demonstrate his covenant faithful love to. Uh, Jonah knew the history of his own people. They're constantly running out, out on God. They're constantly teetering on the edge of destruction. And God is consistently demonstrating grace and mercy and compassion toward them. Jonah's saying, I know that you're like that, God. That's why I ran away from you. Because I don't want anybody else, specifically not the Ninevites to experience that kind of grace. So what what you're what you're looking at here is is really it's it's the sign. It's the paramount sign uh, that you have a divided heart. What what you're seeing in Jonah is is unbridled, it's undisguised, it's unabashed bigotry, racism, Ethnocentrism, toxic nationalism, Pharisaic religiosity, probably a a few more things all kind of wrapped up in a ball rolling around in Jonah's heart. If if I had to just kind of one word, one phrase summarize it. What what you're seeing in Jonah is a a marked us versus them mentality. It's, you know, we're the people who are right, they're the people who are wrong. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, we're the insiders, they're the outsiders. What what these verses are, are showing us is that that is the sign that, that you have a divided heart. Now, but before I move forward, I just thought there are f- probably few things that are more important for Christians to get a hold of than, than this. So I just want to camp out on this for a moment and, and remind us of something that, you know, if you're a Christian, I think you know. It's just, it's a, it's a healthy thing for us to be reminded of. If Jesus adopted that mentality... If Jesus adopted the mentality of of us versus them, you know, insiders, outsiders, good versus bad people. The line Jesus would have drawn would not have been between good people and bad people. The line would have been between heaven and earth. And Jesus would have never come down here and we would all be without hope. Uh, but what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto and used to his own advantage, but instead he humbled himself and he came down here to live among and eventually to die in order to redeem his enemies, also known as you and I. And, and so what the gospel is showing us is that Jesus refused to adopt the mentality that I think so many people claiming to be his followers tend to adopt. And and what these verses in Jonah are showing us is that if you and I sense in our own hearts the mentality that we're seeing in Jonah's life here, meaning if, if if you tend to look out into life and when you see people who aren't like you, people who... Uh, Don't look like you people who don't live like you people who don't believe like you or (laughs) This is a big one people who don't vote like you If when you see those people you you have a tendency to view them as enemies Or as outsiders Or as 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 people that at least a part of you just kind of secretly hopes that god will get them That mindset, that posture of the heart in and of itself is is maybe the greatest sign that you and I have a divided heart. Uh, But these verses show us not only the sign of that, they also show us the source of that. They show us where that that comes from. Because in verse 3, what Jonah says is, he says it's better for him to die than to live. Now, I I just want to Consider that for a moment. For Jonah to say it's better for me to die, what he's saying is something was in my life that was giving my life meaning, that was making my life worth living. And so now that that thing's gone or now that that thing's at least threatened, my, I no longer have a reason to live. I no longer have a reason to continue um, and, and so whatever that thing was in his life, obviously, that was Jonah's functional God. That was Jonah's rival God because it, what, it's what he was deriving his meaning in life from. And that—that uh, that is the source of a divided heart. What's the source of a divided heart? It's deriving your meaning in life from something, from, from anything alongside of or instead of God. I just want to say that one more time. The source of a divided heart... Is deriving your meaning in life from anything alongside of or instead of God? Now, that, of course, raises the question, what exactly was Jonah deriving his meaning in life from? Which we're going to get to that. I just wanted to point this out first. When I read Jonah 4 here, it's easy for me to excuse myself and say, well, you know, I've never been that kind of off the rails. So maybe, you know, this doesn't have a lot for me. Um, I just think this is universally applicable. It's true that, at least in my experience, almost nobody uses the kind of flamboyant language that Jonah's using here. Almost nobody says the phrase, I'm angry enough to die. And, And certainly, even when people do say things like that, it's very rare that we would say this directly to God. And so it's easy to read that and think, well, you know, of course this guy's unstable, but I'm not like that. I just want you to think about this a little bit differently. All Jonah's saying here is, my life has no meaning any longer. It's not that Jonah is suicidal, it's that he's lost the will to live. And any therapist will tell you there's a world of difference between those two things. This is is the picture of a person who simply, because of some loss he's incurred, he doesn't know who he is anymore. He feels completely aimless in life, he feels completely purposeless in life, and he he looks out into into his life, he thinks about his future, and he's just kind of in this despondent mindset where he's telling himself, maybe there's just nothing for me out there any longer. If I can just get really transparent for a moment here, I've been there before. And, and, and I would say, and I don't want this to sound offensive, but I, I believe it to be true, I would say if you have not been there before, it's, easy, it's either you know, maybe because you're really young or because you've had a really easy life. And so Jonah's in this place because the God that, that he was deriving his meaning in life from, that he was looking to to, to make his life worth living, has been you know, taken away from him. And, and so, of course, that raises the question, what exactly was Jonah's false god? And I think it's crystal clear what his false god is in, in, in this particular story. It's the national security of his people. The, the, the reason that, that Jonah was so obsessed and so kind of, you know, losing his mind at the fact that, um, that God wasn't going to destroy Nineveh is because Jonah realized that Nineveh represented a, a significant political threat to his own nation, the nation of Israel. And this was not an in, in irrational fear of Jonah's. As a matter of fact, history goes on to tell us that not long after the life of Jonah, the nation of Assyria, which that's, that was the, the nation that Nineveh was the capital of, the nation of Assyria did wind up eventually growing strong enough to attack Israel and to basically sack Israel and to destroy 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jonah wasn't wrong in perceiving that this capital and the nation that it represented was a huge political this was a looming world power that as the days drew on it eventually, you know, it was representing a huge threat to his own people and his own nation's security. That's the reason that he's losing his mind here, you know, at the fact that God's, you know, not destroying Nineveh immediately. Now, before I continue, I just want to make sure I know that talking about this especially in the climate that we're in Uh, is sort of ripe for miscommunication. I just want to be really clear here, and, and I hope you don't hear what I'm not trying to say. I'm certainly not saying that it's wrong to desire national security. Of course, that's not wrong. That's a good thing to desire. What you're seeing in Jonah's life here is Jonah loved his people, and he loved his nation. That's a very good thing. What you're seeing here, I think it's even appropriate to say, is that Jonah was a patriot, which again is a good thing. But what his life is showing us is that when love for your people turns into a disdain for everybody who's not your people, when love for your people turns into this kind of tribalism that creates a worldview in you that has you hoping that all of those dirty pagan outsiders get what's coming to them instead of coming to the saving knowledge of of God like you have, that is is evidence that a good thing in your life has now become, it's become an idol. And the fact that Jonah's responding the way that he is here proves that that's exactly what was going on in his own heart. It proves that there were two gods at war uh, for allegiance of Jonah's heart, both rolling around his heart at the same time. You have the true God, and you have the God of, of his nation, the God of national security. And what what's happening in Jonah's life is is... I don't think anybody, I mean, when you really understand what's going on here, I don't think any one of us has the right to kind of look down our nose at Jonah because all all that's happening is prior to this moment in his life, things were great because as long as for Jonah, I think this is true for me, I think this is true for all of us, as long as serving the true God allowed him to serve his rival God, as long as serving the true God kept his rival God intact, there's no problems. But what happened is on the day, the moment that, that serving the true God cost Jonah his rival God. What Jonah did is he, is he turned on God. And that is really the core of the instability, all of the instability that you're seeing in Jonah's life in chapter four of, of, of his life story. That's why he could go from praising God one day to cursing his very existence the next. So all of that, you know, it may, maybe you find that interesting, um, you know, maybe that's, you haven't really read the story that way before or or, or whatever, but of course, that's just Jonah. The question that that this story, like everything in scripture, what this story is, is, is meant to do, among other things, is cause you and I to face ourselves and to have our own come to Jesus moment. And so the question that all of this should lead you and I to is, and I'll just make this personal, what about your rival God's? If you ask Jonah prior to this moment in his life, actually, if you ask Jonah in this moment of his life, who is your God, Jonah would say Yahweh. He would say the God of the Bible. It's just that functionally he was serving another God. So the question this raises is, what is your real religion? What's your real salvation? What is the thing that you've told yourself, I need this in order to be happy? I need this in order for my life to be worth living. I need this. In order to live a fulfilled life. I need this or without this. My life is no longer. It's devoid of all purpose if I lose that. The the question is. What is your functional. I'll use this phrasing sometimes. What is your functional master in your day to day life. Every single one of us has rival gods. Competing with God in our hearts. It's just a question of whether or not we know ourselves enough. To know what those rival gods are. And and maybe you're listening to this. and, And you know. That those gods exist in your own heart. You're just not entirely sure exactly what they are. And so you're wondering, well, how am I supposed to discover what those things are? And if that's where you're coming from, I, I just want to give you three really quick exercises that are... Um, I got all three of these from, from a book called Counterfeit Gods written by Tim Keller. I read a number of years ago. Uh, I hate these exercises. I hate them. Because they nail me to the wall, they force me to see myself, but I will tell you if you'll do these three things, I promise you, you will find out what is actually ruling your life. If you'd like to leave, you should do so now. (laughs) Uh, Number one, if you want to find out the functional gods, the rival gods, the idols, however you want to phrase that of your life, number one, look at your imagination. One of the best ways to find out the real focal point of your life is to simply look at where your mind effortlessly goes when nothing else demands your attention. And, and, and in thinking about where, wherever your mind goes, whatever it goes to, when you consider what those things represent, that is your religion. That is your salvation. That's your functional God. Uh, if, if, if that one doesn't work, here's a second one that I think is even more telling. Uh, This this one, I think, works especially well if you have been in church for a while. All you have to do is look at how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes. If you you move through life, you know, we've all done this before, and you pray really hard for something, or if you're not a praying person, you work really hard for something, and that thing doesn't come to fruition, or you get it and then you lose it, uh, there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that, obviously, God designed us to have emotions. Of course, we're going to feel sadness and sorrow and grief. There might even be, you know, tears associated with that. But if eventually, if you're able to grieve that loss for what it is and move on with your life, then that thing was not your functional God. However, if after praying for something and working for something and and that thing not panning out the way that you wanted to, if you find yourself responding to that loss the way that Jonah's responding here, Meaning the loss of that causes you to no longer have any sense of identity. You have no idea who you are without that thing. You find that your life doesn't have meaning. You you don't don't any longer have any kind of vigor to move out into the world with any kind of passion any longer. Then whatever that thing was, it was was a rival God. I think one of the most common places that this happens today is in relationships. I mean, I've actually, as a pastor, I've talked to people who, who you know, have just been really candid with me that in the, in the wake of a breakup, they considered ending their own life. People have shared that with me before. And that, more than anything else, is, is one of the telltale signs that that person was not your partner, they were your God. And what most people in our, because our society does, it idolizes romantic love. We're taught by songs, we're taught by stories, you're not worthwhile unless you have the romantic love of somebody else, which is completely unbiblical, by the way. Actually, a a biblical worldview would would totally free us from that lie, because it is a lie and and it's miserable. But what a lot of people will do in the wake of that is is they'll, they'll either sink into despondency or they'll immediately run to the next relationship almost like it's medication, Because that's a a functional God is what it is. So the first thing you can do is look at your imagination. The second, look at how you respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes. But the third one, and I like this one the least, is look at your most uncontrollable emotions. I hate that. I've heard it said before, this is really helpful uh, to me, maybe you'll find this helpful, that, that false gods, idols have a tendency to speak to us just like a real God would. And in the language of an idol, of course, you're never gonna hear this audibly, but you know you're under the power of an idol. If you hear that idol saying, this is the language of idolatry, if you meet my standards, then your life will be worth living because you will be a worthwhile person. You'll have value as a person. But if you fail to meet my standards, then you're worthless and you'll have no reason to continue. You can do that with romantic love. You can do that with power. You can do that with comfort. You can do that with physical beauty. You can do that with fill in the blank. We talk about examples of that all the time here. But here's what that means. What that means is that if you and I will develop the very painful discipline of tracing our most uncontrollable emotions back into our hearts, if we will follow our fear, our anxiety, our, our despondency, um, our, our anger, our bitterness, our malice, every, you know, the, the greatest causes of stress in our lives and we follow those back into our hearts nine times out of ten what we're going to find is that what has happened in our life the reason for that uncontrollable emotion is that we have failed to live up to a standard that's been imposed on us by a false god and scripture reminds us in story after story in old testament and new is that those false gods will crush us until we learn to crush them and all this leads us to the question if that's what a divided heart is like, how do you heal a divided heart? Because I don't know anybody that likes feeling the way that Jonah feels here. I don't like anybody, I don't know, I I like a lot of people, but I don't know anybody that likes going from the mountain to the valley, feeling like they don't have any reason to live after they were, you know, having a pretty nice time a half hour beforehand. So what are we supposed to do about this? And there's three things that we can see in this passage. Uh, that it will remind us we need to realize if we're going to heal a divided heart. Those are going to serve as our uh, three main ideas today. I know I took a long time getting to them, but these ideas are going to be shorter than they normally would be. Don't you worry. Number one, what we have to realize if we want to heal a divided heart, number one, is that healing a divided heart is a process. When, when Scripture talks about a pure heart, <clears throat> it's not talking about a perfect heart. Uh, what it's talking about is a single Heart. Biblically speaking, the opposite of a pure heart is not an impure heart, it's a divided heart. And, and, and maybe one of the most important things that we need to understand of, about the, the process of healing a divided heart in us and developing a pure heart in us is that that process is exactly that. It's a process. And if we expect it to be anything other than that, uh, we're going to set ourselves up for all kinds of discouragement pretty soon. I mean, you look at Jonah. Chapter two, he's had a breakthrough. He's turned, he had, he did turn a corner in his spiritual life. Chapter four, he comes to the painful realization he's still got a long ways to go. I, I remember a couple years ago, me and Katie, I actually told this story a couple years ago. Um, me and Katie were having trouble with our dryer. And, uh, I'm not Bob Vila. So I don't know what to do with that. Uh, I can lay hands on an appliance and pray that God brings somebody who can fix it. That is the extent of my expertise. And it was getting real annoying because it wasn't drying the clothes. And towards the end, it was like every two or three minutes, it would just shut off entirely. We had to run it like six or seven times. I wasn't about to fool with the dryer itself, but I did a little bit of investigating. I walked around the back of the house and I saw what I believed was... Uh, you know, the source of the bane of my existence. We have, I'm sure House Pride has the same thing, we had this, uh, this dryer exhaust duct that, you know, went out on the rear side of the home and, uh, you know, those, those ducts are supposed to have a little vent on it with these little fins that flap down when it's not blowing out hot air. The fins had been broken off and in their place there's a ton of hay uh, that was put there apparently by a starling and I am done with starlings, by the way. after after this event. So I I thought that was the problem. And and so I called my father-in-law. We got this, we borrowed a ladder from my neighbor. Ladder weighs like a hundred pounds. And it was great that that we knew where this problem was, but it was in like the least convenient place possible. It was about 25 feet up in the air and it was right over the concrete steps that served as as my basement walkout. So I was risking it all in order to go to to war with the starlings which throughout the whole process was this in, in a branch, like eight feet away, just laughing at me. And so I got up there, I climbed the ladder, and, and I, I, this was a very unnerving thing for me, but I jammed my arm as far as it would go into this exhaust duct. And what was kind of unsettling is it wasn't even a nest up there. It was just like the bird version of hoarder's which I thought was just a human thing. Apparently, starlings suffer from it as well. So I was about elbow deep in this this exhaust duct. I got all this nastiness out of there, and I looked, and lo and behold, the problems went a lot deeper than I thought they did. And so I had to get down from the ladder, and I looked around, and the first thing that came to mind was some tongs from my grill. You should bring your own tongs if you want to grill at my house. Uh so I went back up to this this uh, nest and I, <laughs> I jammed my arm in there with these tongs in hand and I was ripping all this stuff out I thought I got to the to the end of it I still didn't get to the end of it so then we had a dowel rod I I fashioned like a wire coat hanger around it I was jamming that in there that didn't even get to the end of it finally this was the end of the story I I used my fire department skills and I tied a vacuum cleaner across my back with a rope So I looked like a ghostbuster climbing this ladder. And even that didn't get it. I mean, it, it, it got enough of the problem solved that the dryer works and has worked to this day praise God. Uh, But even that didn't get to the root of the issue. And I'm telling that story because every time, what I learned that day is every time I got to what I thought was the root of the issue, I realized the problems went a whole lot further than I realized. And and biblically speaking, uh, that's exactly what you and I should expect when we begin dealing with our own hearts. When you talk about healing a divided heart and developing a pure heart, what we're we're really talking about there is getting ourselves to a place in life where we love and we serve God, not because he might bless us, not because he might answer us, uh, you know, a prayer or give us the good life. It's it's getting to a point in life where we love and we serve God simply for who God is. And getting to that point in life is a process that does not end on this side of eternity. And in fact... I think it's appropriate to say that mature Christians are not people who have arrived at that place. I think they're first and foremost people who realize they're never going to totally arrive at that place, but they're always moving in that direction. And each time they have a breakthrough, like Jonah did in in chapter 2 of his story, they realize, they have a close eye on their own heart, and they realize there's always more selfishness than we're presently aware of in our own hearts. Right? Because when in, in the very beginning... When people first come to God, we always come to God with selfish motives. Uh, You can see this in the gospel accounts clear as day. When people were first drawn to Jesus, it's almost always because... You know, they thought it would be thrilling to associate with him or they heard that he performed miracles and they wanted a miracle and, you know, this person's sick or I would like a meal or whatever. Anybody who's done any amount of growing in their relationship with God is able to look back and, and, and realize that their original motives for coming to God w- were stained with selfishness. I mean, I, I've talked to people, you know, who, who, who after the fact, you know, they, they, they've talked about how the, the primary reason they started coming to church and turning to God was because their marriage was on the rocks. And their wife was going to leave them if they didn't start going to church. And so that made going to church seem like a viable option. You know, I've talked to people who, uh, you know, they had terrible home lives. And, and, you know, a lot of friends that kind of cut on them and run. And so they were lonely and they were looking for a community of people that would hopefully not do that to them. And that's what made church appealing. What I'm driving at here is that it's almost always a felt need that drives us to God. If, if, If it required totally pure motives to come to God, we'd never do it. But one of the... One of the many amazing things about God is that He will meet us despite our impure motives. He'll meet us despite those impure motives. But, but this is so important to understand. One of, if not the hallmark, that lets you know you have had a genuine encounter with the God of the Bible, rather than just the God of your own imagination. The, really, the hallmark of it is, is a twofold realization. Number one, you realize how shoddy your motives have, have been, how selfish you have really been, even in your good deeds. But right alongside with that, you also begin to come to this realization of God and you realize that God will not be a means to an end, that God is not your errand boy. God is not. Your employee, God is not uh, your, your servant. God is not your personal assistant. He can't be tamed. He can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated, and he certainly he can't even be bargained with because we have nothing to bargain with the one to whom we owe our very existence. <laughs> How do you bargain with omnipotence? There's nothing we can offer him, and so the the only thing, the only logical conclusion is to simply love and to serve him, not for what he might give us, but for who he is. And and dealing with our natural self-centeredness and getting to that place in life, that's a process that never ends. If you think you've arrived at the end of that, there's a good chance you've barely even begun. But what this means, I think it's actually a really hopeful thing, because what this means is we should never be too amazed, and we should never be too discouraged. When we come to realize what I came to realize when I was trying to clean out my dryer that day, which is that every time we have a breakthrough, we realize that the problems went further than we thought they did when we got started. So first, healing a divided heart is a process. <clears throat> number two, the second thing that, that uh, th- this, this chapter, God's Word, shows us is number two, healing a divided heart can be painful. Uh, what, what this episode of Jonah's life is showing us is that along this process in which God is working with us to develop a a pure heart, a single heart in us, is that what he'll often do for us is what he's done to Jonah, is he'll take away comforts in our life so we can see what we've really been relying on. And in this story, what happens is God causes this vine to grow up that provides shade for Jonah. Now that, admittedly, probably doesn't seem like a big deal for, for you and I because... You know, there's a good chance if you're listening to this, you've probably been in an air-conditioned environment for all of your life. You probably haven't spent a lot of time in the desert, like a lot of our people in the military have. For those of you, you know, joining us online from out of state, we're really close to Fort Meade, so we tend to have a lot of people here from the military, and I'm sure a lot of you know what it's like, you know, to spend some time in the desert without shade. I have never spent any time in the desert. I have done the next best thing. I've watched every episode of Man vs. Wild featuring Bear Grylls. I remember in season two... Uh, Bear went to the Sahara Desert, and uh, by this point in the episode, there have been like three people from the film crew emergency evacuated uh, for heat-related emergencies. <clears throat> and Bear came across a camel spider, which is the most horrifying creature in existence. It's hard for me to imagine that a camel spider was in the Garden of Eden. I've actually been thinking about that this week. But anyway, the camel spider was chasing Bear grills around the sand dune, But here's the thing, it's not because it was trying to attack him. It's because it wanted that desperately to stand in the shade that he was providing. That's how precious shade is in an environment like this. And so what what you're seeing here is that that God uh, took that away in order to teach Jonah a lesson about himself. And here's what we need to, to see. The human heart does exactly what Jonah was doing here. The human heart naturally looks for something you know, to find its comfort in. It naturally looks for something to hide under, to seek refuge in, to escape the pressures and the stresses of our of our day-to-day lives. And, and one of the hallmarks of God's dealing with us is that whatever that thing is, God will take that thing away from us. I, I, like I, I can say this with total confidence in my life. You can see it in so many stories in Scripture. Maybe you can say amen to this in, in, in your own life. If If what you seek comfort in is... You know, the approval and, and, the, and the, the applause of people, if that's become your God, your God, then the real God will allow you to experience, you know, rejection and criticism, just to show you how much of a hold that has on your life. If your God is power, God will allow you to experience instability. He'll allow you to feel like you're, you're, you're weak and you're feeble and, and you're not in control of the things that you thought you were in control of. I don't know that I've ever learned anything or grown in any way apart from God operating like that in my life. And, and I, I realize that there's I'm sure there's all kinds of people listening to this right now that, that you're right where Jonah was, and God's dealing with you just like that. And you know how painful that is. You know that it's like being kept awake for surgery. But but unbelievable growth can take place, specifically through those times in our lives if and only if they lead to the third and the final thing that, that Jonah's life shows us uh, that we're going to talk about today. Number three is our last idea today. It's that healing a divided heart requires a personal grasp of grace. Right? This, this process of developing a single heart, uh, number one, it's a process. Number two, it's always going to entail God taking things that we've looked to to give us when only he can truly give us but, but for that process to be effective and for it to lead to any real change, it has to lead to you and I coming to a place where we personally grasp the grace of God. And we know this because that's where Jonah was back in chapter 2. If you, if you remember Jonah chapter 2, that, that chapter ends with a prayer. And that prayer ends with Jonah saying, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Salvation comes from the Lord. And what that is, is that's Jonah having a personal encounter with the grace of God. When he did, he had a breakthrough. But here Jonah is again, and he's done what every single one of us does. He's forgotten what he used to know. And here Jonah is again, and he needs what every single one of us needs. He needs the grace of God, and the love of God, and the mercy of God, and the person of God, and the presence of God to become real to him one more time. March 16th, 2013 was one of the most important days of my life. I've never shared this story with you all before. This is really personal for me. But as I was putting this teaching together, um, it just seemed like now's the time. Uh, March 16th, 2013, I had what we're talking about here, a personal encounter with God in ways that um, I had never had quite like that before. I have not had anything quite like that since. And there was there was so many things that God had led me through prior to that date uh, that I think brought me to that place. In um, in the summer of 2012, I actually made the decision uh, to start talking to a counselor um, just to see if if to what extent experiences that I had in my life, you know, were impacting me, you know, even then, and what I was carrying around and and, and through that process, I, I came to realize how, you know, things that God had led me through, experiences that I had, had really developed in me, not only an incorrect view of myself, but more importantly, an incorrect view of God. And, and prior to that time in my life, it was almost, you know, I could see this now, I couldn't see it at the time, but it was almost as though I was trying to get to know a God that I could not see clearly. And so as I, as I, you know, faced all of those things, the experiences that I had that I really really hadn't slowed down long enough to really kind of process and heal from. It was an unbelievably painful process, but it was the kind of pain that heals. And I can tell you, I would not be a pastor apart from that time in my life. And and what all of that led to in the summer of 2012 is is one night, March 16th, 2013, where I had an encounter with God that uh, I just had an encounter with God. I remember I was, I was renting uh, a room in the bottom of a split foyer, and uh, I was home alone, thankfully. Um, and I, I got out my guitar, and I was, I was worshiping God. And I was singing this song that, that, that means so much to me. Uh, you're probably familiar with it. It's, it's called How He Loves by John Mark McMillan. Um, every time I sing that song, it's hard for me not to get emotional. Every time I sing that song, it will make my wife cry. And there I was that night, uh, just me and God, and I was worshiping and um, the way that song ends is it just, it's exactly what the title says. You, you just a real powerful note. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves. As soon as I was done singing that song, I put my guitar down. I fell face down on that carpet. And I have never cried like that. I had never cried like that before that day. I have never cried like that since. And the only word that I could use to describe it is that something was unearthed in me. I I, I wouldn't say, I'm, I'm so careful with words like this, I would not say that God gave me a vision. But I'll tell you that as I was face down in the presence of God, weeping like I've never wept before, God brought all of these memories to my mind. And they weren't good ones. They were painful. They were the kind of memories I wish I didn't have. That I wish God didn't walk me through And I bet you got some memories like that yourself But with each and every one of those memories I've never I don't know what to do with this Other than to chalk it up to God In every one of those memories I could see myself And there was this cloud around my head And I knew then and there That that cloud was the presence of God And it was the love of God And what I knew in a way that broke me clean in half in that moment was that throughout the hardest times of my life, in my most painful memories, in in the times that I've wondered, God, why why is that a part of the path that you've decided to lead me in? What I knew in that moment was that God was with me in every single one of those moments and he loved me the whole time. And I said that phrase out loud. As I wept, I said, you loved me the whole time. When I got up from the carpet that night, I could actually see a puddle of tears. And what happened that night was I had a personal encounter with the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. And it absolutely broke my heart But in breaking it, it finally started to heal it. And I just, I want to be real clear here. When we say that we exist to see lives transformed by Jesus, I'm just asking you to hear my heart here. That encounter, that's why I do this instead of fighting fires for Anne Arundel County. That's why I put these messages together every week. That's why we make sure that this ends with Jesus every single time. That's why Sarah leads us in worship That's why we make a big deal out of small groups and we try to provide opportunities for people to serve like Jesus in and outside the four walls of God's people. If you want to know what the ulterior ulterior motive is here, it's about bringing one more person to that place one more time so that they can have an encounter with the creator and God can go from being more than just an abstract concept but a lived reality that leaves them changed forever. That's why we do this. I want to call the worship team up. We're going to close today. In verse 2 of this story, this really spoke to me. When Jonah said, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. These words He said, I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah knew that about God intellectually, intellectually. But what he needed and what you need, I don't have to know anything about you to know that you need this. You need to know that God is merciful and compassionate toward you, that God is slow to become angry and rich in faithful love toward you. You need to know that God is one who relents from sending disaster to you for one reason and one reason only, because he loves you. And if ever you doubt that, all you need to do is go back to Calvary because Calvary is the proof. Calvary is the tangible reminder that God emptied heaven of its greatest treasure so he could fill heaven with you. Calvary is the tangible reminder that God sent disaster on his own son so that he could relent from sending disaster to you. And what we need more than anything else is to be brought back to that kind of love until that love becomes real to us because when it becomes real, it'll break our hearts and in breaking them, it'll heal our hearts. And all, all all I can say as we close today, all I can say, I hope God brings you there. I hope he brings us all there as many times as he needs to because that is how a divided heart is healed. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm just asking you bring somebody. There's so much hurt, and you know it all, God. You can bear it all. There's so much pain, and there's worry, and there's fear, and there's anxiety, and there's despondency, and there's instability. God, you know it all. You know the secret hurts. You know the secret pains. You know the baggage that we're carrying around. You know it. You know it, and you care about it. God, I'm just asking somebody here today or on the other side of the screen, would you bring them to that place where they have a personal encounter with how much you love them, where they have a personal encounter with your presence. God, we drift to this place where you just become an intangible, abstract reality. We need you to become more real to us. And based on what I see in your word, you desire to meet with us even more than we desire to meet with you. Would you meet with somebody today, God? Would you meet with somebody today and break their heart with your love so that in breaking their heart, their heart could finally begin to heal? I ask this with nothing but hope, by grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus.